binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. Are you gonna love them or hate them? Here comes the binge. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Binge, in which a couple of homos review the latest movie releases. I'm Jason Leroy. And I'm Rebecca Olarte. And today we are doing, Jason, please tell us all. <laughs> because there's no script. I will riff. <laughs> <just broke. laughs> Guys, uh, it is mid-January, so you know what that means. Uh it's 2021. <laughs> yeah. Coming at you, hot Rebecca and I finally got around to watching The Favorite, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we, we thought it was great. We have thoughts on La La Land v. Moonlight. Uh, no. Uh, guys, we are here to give you our picks for the best and worst of film in the year 2022. Uh, we took another another fully scheduled break uh, for the last two months or so. Uh, but rest assured that we have been watching things and we are here now to recap those things. Uh, but you know, 2022 in general, uh, was a year in which, uh, you know, the binge had a beautiful reunion, um, scheduled midway through the year. Um, and so this is great that we get to do a recap episode because, you know, we, we, I think we had maybe a total of like four episodes this year. Mm. Uh, so surely was not enough to actually talk about everything that came out. Um, so now we're going to do a bit of a, bit of a top level overview, uh, Rebecca, Looking back at 2022, what are some what are some top level takeaways for you? Looking back at this uh, at this calendar year. Oh wow, um, what uh, what a weird year it's been. I mean, we've had weirder in recent uh, recent history, but um, you know, I'm glad it's over. It wasn't <laughs> my favorite, I'll say. Adios. Um, I'm surprised. I feel like I saw more movies than I thought I had, um, and I'm also surprised that I think I don't have as many worst of because i you know but when we used to do the show in person mm. we used to go to all the screenings and it you know we were kind of like forced to see everything good or bad and now we're like a little more picky um maybe i don't yeah. know yeah. um and so there are a few i mean there are still some and i think that makes them extra worse because we chose to see them based on <laughs> something and they're still um shitty so i'm i'm excited to hear what your worst of are yeah. especially for those that don't overlap because i'm assuming there's at least going to be one overlap um, i think so mm-hmm. yeah no I, it's true i think we do get angrier at them now mm-hmm. um than we did before because we feel like we're deliberately going our way to choose to watch these things even though of course in the before times when we were going to press screenings we were also choosing to go to those but just I think just the fact that we were going in like an official press capacity and you know, we weren't paying and, you know. The fact, yeah, the fact I mean, that, that's very true. That's a big part of it. Yeah. You know, like we were just, go, you know, showing up at, at various malls around in the general Union Square area of San Francisco, uh, you know, one or two nights a week to see a movie for free. And then we would just kind of be like, oh, yeah, it sucked, whatever. Um, but you know, now, yeah, it just feels like there's added pressure on everything. Uh, and so, uh, but you know what? Sorry, movies, them's the breaks. Um, this is the binge you're getting, not the binge you might want. Uh, so, but yeah, no, it's true. Uh, I, I think that our, our, our criteria have changed in some ways, uh, over the last few years, just because the experience of watching movies has changed over the last few years. Um, so, and, and personally speaking, looking back at this year in film, I'm not very blown away 
you know, looking at my, so this is my second year in a row that I've kept like a running tally on Letterboxd of every single movie that I have seen um, ranked. And, uh, and just like looking back at the previous years, I'm just like, boy, this year was dog shit for movies, uh, which I feel like I do say every year. Uh, so you do, uh, right? I mean, you, you just keep getting more old and cynical. Yeah. You're like yeah, movies think, in my day were all, it was all Mulholland drive. <laughs> exactly. We had faces then, uh, you know, I'm just like, you know, back in my day when we were watching movies like <laughs> powder and she's all that, uh, we, we knew what cinema was. Um, and yeah, reality did bite, but we made the most of it and <laughs> cinema was great. And I'll tell you what, I was not sitting there watching, you know, the age of innocence on my Apple watch. Uh, <laughs> So, but uh, yes, I, porn. I, 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 I yeah. people on the bus. <laughs> you know, so yeah, it's out as a slippery slope. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, I'm, I, I think I probably am becoming more curmudgeonly, uh, uh, with age, but normally by the end of the year, there's like a bunch of things that pop up at the very end where I'm just like, okay, that was really good. Um, th- this year, you know, my top five, I'm just like, yeah, I could take or leave some of these. But uh, oh, interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll include them all the same. Um, so, but yeah, I don't know. I I, I took, I re, I did the thing I do every year, where at the very end of the year, for like the final month, I am just like mainlining screeners, being like, okay, I need to watch all this shit so I can like have it all crossed off um, before the year ends and can you know be prepared to you know speak authoritatively about everything that came out this past year. And then I'm like, and now I, I did that. And so now I'm just like, you know, watching all these like random old movies that I've picked up over the years. And I'm just like, these movies are fucking weird too. Uh, so I'm like, so once again, I've gone down the rabbit hole, like, do I even like movies? Unclear. Oh, right. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I don't. Yeah. Maybe, maybe this whole, whole podcast is a, is a, is a fraud and a sham. And, uh, okay, and you don't is, like uh, movies. We don't like each other. Like, what is the, <laughs> I know. what is this? What is this limbo? Uh, oh, I think it's we both just in? like, the sound of our own voices. Mm, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that tracks. That tracks. So we can really, we really can start messing with the uh, the format of the show because <laughs> the subject matter and the and the and the company is not anything that we are seeking out. <laughs> uh, so, but uh, but yeah. Well, with that said, uh, guys, our format for uh, for this episode will be as follows. We're going to start with our uh, our picks for the five our our five favorite movies of the year. Uh, we are going to go back and forth through our list alphabetically and we will see, and this is good, just so you guys know, we are going to be hearing these titles for the first time from each other. We don't know what each other's list is going to be for any of this. So we will go back and forth and see if we have any overlap. And then we will do the same for our bottom five movies of the year. And then Rebecca might have a little bit of extra to throw in at the end. <laughs> just five random movies. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, Which no, is, I mean, no, some some uh, some sort of disappointments maybe some surprisingly entertaining movies we'll see we'll see if we get there we'll see we'll see but uh but starting off first for our top five favorite movies of 2022 rebecca do you want to kick us off i you know what i don't i want you to go first this <laughs> <laughs> okay. is the hazard of not having a script ladies and gentlemen uh so <laughs> The first movie in my top five in alphabetical order is a documentary. Oh, 
And that documentary. So smart you are. <laughs> and that documentary is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Ooh, tell me yes. all about that. It's not on my list. Did you watch it? I did not. <laughs> all right. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Uh, I actually watched it. Uh, Mima was in town recently, and I actually watched it with her. Um, that was my second time watching it, and it, it, I thought it was possibly even better than the first time. Oh. So All the Beauty and the Bloodshed is a, it's a documentary directed by Laura Poitras, who previously directed Citizen Four, uh, the, the WikiLeaks documentary. Um, and this time her subject is the famous photographer Nan Golden. Um but the subject, because, you know, Laura Poitras is very much sort of like an activist filmmaker. So the subject is nothing so rote as just, oh, let's tell the story of this photographer's career. Um, it is sort of a, a, a threefold story. Uh, and the, 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 the current present tense storyline that sort of girds it all together is about how uh, Nan Golden essentially declared war on the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma uh, because of the opioid crisis, which affected Nan Golden directly because several years ago she had had a, a, an operation and she was prescribed OxyContin afterward and she became addicted immediately and went through a very horrifying um, journey trying to, to kick it. And then when she began to learn more about um, just like how how pervasive and widespread the opioid crisis is and how much of it ultimately um, stems back to the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma, um, she got really pissed off and started to seek out other people who've been similarly impacted and trying to organize to figure out how they could what they could do to fight um, to fight back and to fight for justice. And uh, and what the, what Nan Golden realized that she could do, because part of what was really especially infuriating and offensive to her is the extent to which the Sacklers were sort of viewed as philanthropists in the art world. Uh, because, you know, many of the mm -hmm. world's top museums and galleries had like Sackler wings uh, because uh, or they had collections that were donated because of like, you know, the previous generation of Sackler was like a, you know, world, uh, world class sort of art collector, you know, collector in big quotes. Um, and so she was like, what if I, Nan Golden, somebody whose work is featured in the permanent collections of many of these top museums around the world? What if I were to use my name um, to demand that they take down the Sackler name? Uh, so sort of the present tense storyline is that mm. is this Nan and a group of activists, um, just waging this battle to try to scrub the Sacklers to, to shun them from the art world and to scrub their name from every place that it, that it was, um, despite how powerful and well-resourced the Sacklers are. Mm -hmm. Um, but then in the background, um, the storylines that are being told is more about her life journey, which is a remarkable story. Uh, you know, it, there's there's the there's a childhood component of it, because when she was much younger, she had an older sister uh, who was, as was very common at the time uh, in the 60s. You know, she was just like a, a teenage girl, but her parents thought that she was, you know, that she was mentally unwell just because she was uh -huh. moody. So, you know, just your classic sort of girl interrupted situation of that era of, you know, of women just being sort of, you know, mass shoved into mental health institutions. Um, 
and her sister, uh, you know, ended up dying by suicide at a very young age. And Nan felt felt like that, you know, and growing up in this very sort of buttoned up uh, East Coast family, uh, she felt like she felt the weight of that, that her sister was like this truth teller and that she felt driven to go and like live this truth with this boldness um, and to, to name the secrets in the way that her sister tried to do. And um, so, and then it follows her journey as she moves to New York in the mid seventies, mid to late seventies. And it follows a very similar arc to like Patti Smith's Just Kids. Um, just all these mm. different narratives from that era of people who moved to like downtown Manhattan, lower Manhattan, um, in the late seventies, mid late seventies, and just found that underworld of, uh, of artists and, and chunkies and everything in between, um, and every variation thereon. And, uh, and so, and then, you know, just her journey of, of, you know, being in that sort of extended Warhol world and, uh, and then finding her voice as a, as a photographer, uh, you know, and being this sort of this truly trailblazing female photographer who was using her lens to to show stories and, and images that had never been focused on by the mainstream art world before of, you know, of, of queer lives and lives in the margin. And, uh, you know, it's just the, the whole thing cumulatively, these three chat, these three threads of it between her story about her sister, her own journey through her career and her personal life, and then this present tense battle against, um, you know, this 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 Goliath. Um, it's, it's done in, incredibly well. Um, I, I have not always loved Laura Poitras, um, and, you know, Citizen Four is not a personal favorite. Um, and, you know, she definitely has some of her Poitrasisms that jump out here, such as, you know, people making allegations, uh, that they are being followed. Um, mm. you know, at one point we see a Bernie 2020 window sign. <laughs> uh, so I'm like, <laughs> well, it's a Laura Poitras movie. Uh, but it is, it is just, uh, an incredible, incredible, it's one of my favorite documentaries I feel like I've ever seen. Um, and, uh, and it's, I, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Uh, so that is all the beauty and the bloodshed directed by, Na uh, directed by Laura Poitras. That is a very strong start. Um, and I'm glad it wasn't one that was on my list and I'm glad it wasn't one that, um, I, I do, I do remember seeing this, I think, frankly, on a plane. Uh, considered watching it. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, I think kind of thinking about what we were saying earlier about not seeing as many bad movies as we used to when we used to have to see them. <laughs> right. It makes it all the more important to bring up those that people aren't hearing about, may not be hearing about anyway. Um, yeah. And we, we also considered doing like a, what are the best prestige movies uh, at this mm -hmm. time around? But it feels like it's it's kind of, you know, if we do have voices that we love to hear ourselves <laughs> use um, for those that might not be um, heard as much. Right. Yes. And uh, and this this should be in your neon box set, by the way. <laughs> and you're like, if you just looked at the things in your house, you would also see this movie. <laughs> I'd like okay. to be clear you've had you've had this for about three months. Wow. Uh, but, like, but no I rush. texted you about this repeatedly. <laughs> You're like, I love these left field things that there's no way I could have <laughs> ever heard of. <laughs> um well, well, well. Um okay, so my first pick you know might be a little more heard of now, uh, that we are a week after the um Hollywood Foreign Press Golden Globe Awards. Um, and it is Argentina 1985. 
Oh. Mm, have you seen it? No, I I have not gotten around to watching that one. I, I I kept hearing about it, and I know it's on Prime Video, so I can watch it anytime I want. But mm-hmm. no, I've not, I I have not watched it. So let's let's hear it. I think uh, I think it was a a big surprise because I I think most people expected RRR to win that category. Um, right. But uh, this one this one is one one to watch. It is uh, you know clearly an Argentinian film, and they're you know maybe a little bias in the house. <laughs> <laughs> did need to see it the minute it was released. Um, By a slash bullying. <laughs> speaking of hunters, um, <laughs> so the movie is, I you know it isn't uh, a, a small indie foreign film. This is the I think Argentinian equivalent. I think the um, a soul cause calls the uh, main actor in this uh, Ricardo Darín like the Tom Hanks of Argentina. Oh. This is uh, a legal thriller. Uh, it takes place, you know, in 1985 when there was this uh, team of, of lawyers, uh, the country prosecutor, that were uh, given the responsibility to hold the, the military dictatorship during the 80s accountable in the court of law. And um, it's very much a, you know, story of a like a David and Goliath man set up to lose his... Um, his decisions in the past and his morals being questioned, his life in danger because so many of the people who had been in the dictatorship and 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 part of the the functioning, um, you know, terror were still very much a part of uh, active society. There was one point where um, there's one point in the movie where they're sort of trying to get uh, witnesses to testify and. And people are afraid because, you know, the head of the hospital was, you know, the head of this camp that they were forced to work in. And it's not that these things just sort of disappeared, which um, is kind of, you know, an interesting thing to think about as we, you know, kind of almost went through our own coup uh, mm. a year and a half ago. And we are seeing it happen around the world to help, you know, when when it's not uh, a warlike situation where there's like an invading country or um, it's something that happens internally it, those things just don't go away. Those people don't go away. And mm. um, after having been to Germany for the first time this year and in Berlin, you know, kind of see that same right. journey uh, uh, people go through when you kind of have to figure out how to make justice within your own system. Mm. But it's, um, you know, it's very much there's a group of plucky, like, intern lawyers that come help on the case. And... Um, yeah, the 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 main actor uh, Ricardo Darín is just, you know, funny in like a in a in a quirky sort of, you know, old man sassy way. Um, a Hanksian way. In a, in a Hanksian way, yes. Um, and it's if you know if you love a legal drama, if you love you know, watching justice uh, come through and watching you know people go against, um, you know, forces of opposition and. It's uh, it's really one for you. I really enjoyed Argentina 1985. I see. Wow, wow, wow. Um, yeah, I, they've they've been definitely screening it all around LA for a while, and I think they've had some of the real life people um, that are portraying the movie doing like Q and A's and everything. And oh, clearly, wow. they were being being wasted on me since I had never even bothered watching it. <laughs> Uh, at the risk of, at the risk of, uh, you know, not to do any spoilers for the rest of your list, but is, is this your, your personal pick for the, for best foreign language film of the year? Oh, that's an impossible question. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, yeah, it's the only one I watched. So yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, 
that, that's, I mean, it is, uh, it's the only one on this list. I think okay. may, my, my list is longer than five. I, no, you know, because right. it's, it's going to have to be if we have overlap. Um, right. But I mean, is, okay, let me ask now, is RRR on your list? No. Have you seen it? Yes. Is it anywhere near your list? Um, <laughs> now we're going to talk about just movies. <laughs> <laughs> guys, guys, we're off the rails. Let's see if we ever come back. Uh, no, no, I, I, I liked it a lot. Um, you know, I think it's a kind of movie that if it was like a, a English language American movie, it's it wouldn't be my taste either. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so like, yeah, like obviously it's like this very, very like insanely over the top actions historical spectacle um so it, it i think i think i said like you know if not the best movie of the year certainly the most movie of the year um <laughs> so that's that's my that's my take on on, uh, on triple r okay yeah that makes sense um you I watched mean, this it is a, i did watch it yeah um okay. i i do still have to see all quiet on the western front um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm putting that off. I really don't want to, I don't, I don't want to watch another like depressing war movie. I'm just not, not, not interested. Um, but it seems like it's surging and, and it seems like it's a lot of, uh, front, a lot of pundits picks for the winner for that category at the Oscars. Mm. So we'll see. I, I think I would give that one a shot before saying for sure. But I think other than that, yeah, I guess this would be my, my pick for foreign, foreign language film. Yeah. Well, all right. I, I, I dutifully add it back to my up next queue. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So thank you for that recommendation. Okay. My second pick, uh, and I, I, I believe this, this might be an overlap title is the Banshees of Inishiran. Ah, you did. You did put it as the letter B. I did. <laughs> uh, Banshees of Inishirin, comma the uh, is the uh, how it should be how it should be styled. Uh, Rebecca, is this also on your list? This was uh, on my list twice um, because I had it once with the and once without. So uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> so this movie uh, holds holds uh, a cumulative three positions on the list of, <laughs> between the two of us. Uh, this is a movie that uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you have more than likely heard of. Certainly one of the sort of more widely known, widely discussed um, sort of prestige films of the of the fall winter season. Uh, written and directed by Martin McDonough, who previously. Uh, did three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, uh, which, you know, was one of those weird cases where when we first watched it, we were both just like, this is amazing. And then somehow through award season, it took on this reputation as being like problematic. And now people feel like they can't say that it was a good movie anymore or something. Um, I, I still, Wait, what think- happened? Three billboards. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Sorry, I thought you were talking about this one. Okay, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, you know, sorry, as I zoned out on you specifically. <laughs> uh, but no, so yeah, I was saying, you know, McDonough, prior to this movie, his last movie was Three Billboards. Um, and, uh, you know, and I feel like this movie has a lot of the same strengths as that movie, uh, you know, and and uh, I, I actually, you know, confession, I have not seen In Bruges. I know that that's a movie that oh, a lot okay. seen in love. Um, it's always struck me as like vaguely like a 
you know, cinema dude bro movie. Uh, it seems like it's like a lot of straight guys was like, oh, and Bruges is amazing. Mm. Um, so I've never been in like a total rush to see it. I don't think there are even any women in this movie. Um, so, which is always my my question. But such um, a feminist. <laughs> I'm like, I'm when there's some ladies. Um, which, uh, you know, uh, uh, there is a, there is a, a, a movie coming later on my list. Uh, the title of which is, is everything I want from any movie ever, but we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So Banshee Diminished Sharon, I think we have McDonough back doing what he does best. Um, uh, you know, in terms of balancing this story that for the first half or so is just this just explosively funny, dark comedy, uh, that, you know, just manages to, just surprise you with the extent of its hilarity. Um, and, you know, in terms of its, and, and all of which is coming through these really just vividly realized characterizations um, due in part to how McDonough has written the characters and due in part to his amazing cast, which uh, in this case is Colin Farrell, uh, Brendan Gleeson, Barry Cogan, and Carrie Condon. Uh, so, uh, it, you know, it is... This is a movie that I will admit the the, mm, the sort of the allegory of it, I, I you know, tripped me up a little bit when I'm watching it. So, you know, in, in a nutshell, for those who haven't seen it, um, this is a story that takes place in a, in a very small uh, vi- uh, Irish village called Inishirin, uh in like uh, during World War One years. And uh, and it's about uh, these these two men uh, who had been you know, best friends, essentially, uh, on this, in this small village, uh, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. And then one day, Brendan Gleeson very abruptly informs Colin Farrell uh, that he no longer wishes to be his friend um, because he feels like he's, you know, wasted enough of his time um, being friends with somebody as dumb uh, as Colin Farrell is and as needy. And, uh, and he attempts to sort of just ghost him in real time in a very small village. And it turns out it's very difficult <laughs> to ghost somebody in a very small village. Um, so, and so we, 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 we watch Farrell sort of humorously spiral, uh, as he attempts to process this, um, you know, and we see it also through the lens of his long suffering sister, uh, played by the great Carrie Condon. Uh, and, uh, but then he, he can't accept it. So he just keeps going back to Gleason to being like, oh, I'm sure you've gotten over that by now. Like we're good again. Right. Like we're still friends. Right. Um, and Gleason, um, is frustrated that Farrell will not accept what he had said and the boundary, if we want to call it that, that he has set. And so he begins to take increasingly extreme measures to convince Farrell of how much he means business about ending all contact. Um, and as that journey continues between the two of them, uh, the film kind of gradually crosses over into no longer having much humor and uh, and being uh, much more serious and somber and, and heartbreaking uh, as as these two men sort of just continue this kind of game of of ghosting friendship chicken uh, to see you know how, where where it's all going to go. Um, and what's fascinating about this movie to me is that it, it's it's very rare that you see a movie that not only does it continue to build up the tension and the conflict as the story goes, but it actually ends with a conflict at its complete peak with no mm. resolution in sight, with like less resolution in sight than there ever was in the whole rest of the movie. <laughs> um, in that sense, it almost plays like a prequel, uh, you know, sort of yeah. like it's a, 
it's like it's like this is all this is the this is a, a prequel that explains this this battle to come um, that we would see in the next film. And I gather that it's you know it's an allegory about the Irish Civil War, but uh, you know, but I, 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 I from what I've tried to read about it, it, seems like people feel like it's it is, but they also feel like it's not like an overly like literalistic one, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's like sort of like a loosely inspired impressionistic take on the Irish Civil War and on the nature of, of conflict. Um, I had a hard time getting my head around that conflict, especially because I was watching Brendan Gleeson's performance in this, especially I was like, I felt like the movie was saying that he is the person who is right. Possibly mm. because the way that his, the way that he portrays it, he portrays it with this gravitas and this sort of like this, it is sense of enlightenment Um that and he's the one who's like setting the boundary and so in my like modern understanding of that then you're like okay well then yeah he's right and he is setting a boundary and that needs to be respected um even though you know the codependent in me is like you can't just cut off people like that (laughs) (laughs) uh you know i'm just like i have all kinds of dumb fuck friends i cut off if i could but i wouldn't (laughs) Uh, first of all no you wouldn't Maybe you should. <laughs> as, as in case there's any doubt, Rebecca is the Gleason and I am the Carol. Uh, <laughs> which I mean to tell you, you need to owe me a, a fresh paint job on my door. Uh, I heard you drove by last night and throw your extremities at it. Um, so, but uh, anyway, so yeah, so that is, it, but, but you know, with all that said, I, I think it is just so worth grappling with because it does bring up so much about human relationships and conflict um, and, you know, in the nature of, um, of a sort of really an entrenched conflict and, uh, you know, with, with still lots of great humor add in, we have a, a, a wonderful crone character uh, that repeatedly pops up uh, at a yeah, moment's crone. notice, um, you know, Barry, uh, you know, and, and the other, as we mentioned, the supporting characters, Carrie Condon is the sister's unbelievable Barry Cogan uh as sort of like the the even the 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 one who makes feral look smart in the village um but uh but also has a very poignant storyline uh yeah it's just acting wonderful animal acting um one of the most i mean there's jenny the donkey is uh is the true runaway star of the year uh and and you know people people have gotten really crazy about this polish donkey movie called eo EO? right yeah that's another reason i'm i'm I don't think I could possibly see that movie, but, um, yeah, I would not seems... recommend it. Oh, you've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I would not recommend it. it. Uh, you know, both, both because I think that it would, I, I personally for to you would not recommend it. And then in general, I wouldn't recommend it. I really? don't know what people are talking about with that fucking movie. No shit. Like, Sorry. Like... <laughs> Everything <laughs> off the rails. So we're talking about donkey movies and we start getting a little loose lipped. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Before you know, we're going to be telling those Tijuana stories. Um, but uh, they <laughs> uh, remember. Her name was Jenny too, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't even see her face, let alone get her name. Um, but uh, but yeah, I uh, uh, you know, EO is is bullshit to me. Um, I, I truly, it was. I don't. I I have very little patience for any kind of film that could be considered experimental. Um, and EO was very much an experimental kind of like art house movie. Um, I did not find it. There were like a few moments where I was like, okay, I guess that's kind of interesting. Um, it ends horrifying. Uh, 
And uh, it, the whole thing is just, I'm just like, I don't, I don't understand this stupid fucking Polish donkey movie. Um, so I, I, I do not recommend EO, uh, stick with Jenny, the donkey. Uh, I, I feel like it's just, uh, Jenny, Jenny, Jenny's your gal. Um, okay. even though of course, I mean, there's, there's heartbreak in both stories. Uh, but, but yeah, you, we don't need both. We already have a donkey movie in, in Banshees of Inishir and we don't need EO. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Rebecca over to you since also was on your list. What, uh, what did you enjoy about this film? Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's such a simple story that is, can be relatable in so many ways. Again, I keep like the second time in this conversation, I think even before we started recording that I brought up, um, was it Fableman is in trouble? Oh no. Fleshman. Flesh, Fleshman is in trouble. Is that what it is? <laughs> right, Fleshman is in trouble. Fable. <laughs> <laughs> not, not to foreshadow my worst list, but <laughs> also. Fleischman is in trouble. Fleischman is in trouble. These, these like stories that kind of expand and contract. Um, in in a house, we have a joke and we call them micro micro. It's going micro micro. It's these like, <laughs> very personal relationships that have these, you know, yeah, this allegory, but also um, are relatable in so many different dynamics. And um, I do find it interesting that you think that the setup is that um, Brendan Gleeson's character is the the correct one. Yeah. To me, it feels kind of, kind of from the jump that he is having a personal crisis and is sort mm. of, you know, blaming um, Colin Farrell's uh, character, Patrick, uh, mm. for everything he hasn't achieved in his life. And he thinks that by uh. cutting him off that he will, you know, become more enlightened and be able to express his, you know, full potential as his as he's getting older and it's clearly not the case and he's clearly thinking too high of himself as you know the sister character mm. comes in corrects him repeatedly about things that he thinks he's being so smart about um and how important relationships are and how they don't need to be sacrificed in order to expand um your own full self and your in your growth and enjoyment of uh, the world so mm. mm-hmm. I, no, that's I, interesting i think that the acting in this movie is everything. Mm. The movie is, the story is wonderful. It's beautiful, but the acting in this movie, it's just, it's a treat. It's like going to a Michelin star restaurant where all the ingredients Mm. are like farm to table and it's just (laughs) mastery. Imagine going to a restaurant and they just bring Colin Farrell to your table. They're like, here you go. Oh my God. I mean, you know, you know, what was originally also on my list um, was after Yang. Oh yeah. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I looked at the rest of these and I was like, I, I can't quite justify it, but um, yeah. beautiful. Again, beautiful. The the man's eyebrows mm. should each be, get their own sad card. <laughs> it's true. It's true. He is. He is. He's always just unexpected. Uh, you know, love him when he's doing these hangdog characters in art house movies. He's just. And you know, and and after Yang also featured Portia from White Lotus. So yeah. you know, <laughs> Haley Richardson. Haley Richardson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No. And I think the the thing about the the Gleason character, uh, I was telling this to an old friend Jeff recently, and he was like, "This has always been a problem you've had. You're easily persuaded by people who project authority." Uh, and <laughs> uh, I'm like, "It's true. Uh, drag me." Um, but I think that even hearing you <laughs> drag me, sir. <laughs> drag, drag me, sir. I'm like, yes, yeah, I recognize your authority, and I submit myself to your drag. Uh, he's like, "You're doing it right now." Um, and, you know, I think even the way that you put it, um, I think to me, it registered as like, OK, well, that's valid. You know, it's not like he's being like he's saying, like, yeah, like, I feel like I've, I've, I'm having like this late life, you know, crisis where I'm just like, I've, I've you know, I've wasted a lot of time and I need to start taking my time back 
to like use it on things I want to use my life on. And so I'm, I'm, I'm putting a boundary down where I don't, you know, I don't want you in my life anymore. And I guess like, you know, so to me, I'm just like, I'm like, I could see that being something that like the internet, if that was happening with like people in, in the real world right now, they'd be like, yeah, self care. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like Gleason's would be, Gleason would be validated by like, by modern Western culture as being like, no, he's doing exactly what you need to do in life. You need to draw boundaries and you need to put yourself first and you need to prioritize your own expression. You know, I just felt like, yeah, this is, this is something that people would be like, totally go off King, you know? Uh, so <laughs> So that that was why I was watching it, thinking like, okay, well, I think we're meant to think that he's valid, and Farrell is not respecting his boundaries, and thereby is like running running afoul of uh, of of the right thing to do. So, uh, but no, but, but I think uh, to your point, clearly, like, yeah, the sister being the voice of reason is the one jumping in repeatedly to being like, you don't have to do it this way. Um, you know, like this is not this is not right. Um, and, uh, and then as, you know, and as the action continues, it kind of gets more and more ambiguous, um, as, as the sort of the continuum of conflict between the two of them, um, shifts, you know, and, uh, and, you know, and by the end, uh, it's, it's in a completely different place than it was at the beginning. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's a, it's a really, it's just a rich, like you said, it's, it feels like a very simple story, but it's also a really, really rich allegory. Good pick, Jason. <laughs> Back at you. <ya. laughs> <laughs> um, okay, the next movie that I'm going to pick is uh, a small movie. Um, I would actually just double check to make sure you can rent it places, um, <laughs> and you can rent it on. You can I think you can rent it on Apple TV and like Google Play, and I think you can stream it on Roku. If nowhere else, um, but it's called Homebody, and huh? I'm like, what the what? <laughs> Homebody. <laughs> you know, I think um, just like before when we would get screening passes to to movies we we weren't expecting, um, we've also received screener links to movies I hadn't heard of, and this was one that I I I chose to watch, and it's so it's called Homebody. It's directed by a guy named Joseph Sackett. I think this is his first film. Um, and it's, again, it's like a, you know, a day in the life story. And there's this, it's about a little boy. He's about probably about nine and he lives with his mother in Brooklyn. His name is Johnny. And he's obsessed with his babysitter who's played by, uh, Colby Minifee. I want to say her last name is, I'm pronouncing it correctly, but he's obsessed with her. And, and it's kind of her last day of being his babysitter. And he's been watching these YouTube videos about how to, sort of jump out of yourself. So how to sort of transcend your um, personality, your whole essence, you know, into objects or into animals or into people. And it's one of those like, you know, silly YouTube nonsense meditation pseudoscience videos. Mm -hmm. But he focuses and he focuses and he manages to do it. And he jumps into um, his babysitter. Her name is Melanie's body. And the, the whole kind of story is this idea of, you know, what if when you were nine, you could swap into the body of a different gender mm. um, as babysitters, you know, they're in Brooklyn. She's probably in her 20s. She's also setting to be a doula. And the, just the way that um, this actress, Colby Minifee, plays this woman who's being embodied by a nine year old boy, ex, you know, experiencing life as a woman is delightful. Um, it's, it's 
funny at times. It's a little heartbreaking. Hilarious consequences ensue when she's called to called in to do some doula work. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, you kind of watch the struggle as they kind of vie back and forth for control of, of her body. And um, it's it's such quiet, small, well acted little film. I, I think you would be remiss to miss it. Wow. Yeah, I just looked it up on the Apple TV app. I see uh, it also has Whitmer Thomas is in it, who I just saw at Largo Friday night. Uh, oh, yeah. And Zoe Chow is in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, uh, she plays another doula-like character, midwife. All right. Huh. Yeah, no, I, I genuinely had not heard of this movie. So, uh, so yeah, so you you may have not noticed your neon box set, but I did not notice the link for Homebody. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the funny thing, guys, is that, uh, you know, Rebecca and I are now both members of Gallica, the Gay and Lesbian Entertainment Critics Association. And so we are both getting um, just fire hosed with screeners um, in basically throughout the entirety of December um, in both physical and online formats. And there are so many, especially these smaller films that are, are truly on a wing and a prayer hoping against hope that they'll get somebody, anybody to, to watch them and consider them. And, uh, and so Rebecca is, is fighting a good fight right now. She, she, she picked a random movie uh, and oh, she boy. watched it and now she's telling you guys. So, it's so check it out. Um, yeah. And I, I think about it often. I think about how, you know, I think that's also a kind of a relatable thing. It's, I think it's a relatable in, in, in terms of gender, it's relatable in um, just, you know, being someone else, but that, I don't know. It's just so sensitively and and thoughtfully acted and and directed. I I just I think it it's impactful. Hmm. And from what I can see, it looks like it's only like seventy six minutes long. So not uh, super that's long. for you. <laughs> so shout so out not, for my boy Jason and his short movies. <laughs> so not a super long uh, viewing commitment either. You guys can uh, knock this one out lickety split. Uh, well, all right. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Um, I, I, yeah, I like the concept and this is like a cool cast and the, the, the key art looks interesting. So yeah, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. Thank you for using this platform to tell me about Homebody. <laughs> uh, my next movie, which I know is not in your list because it's first letter comes before H. So you would have already said it. <laughs> If you're still going alphabetical, and I assume that you are. Well, yeah. I mean, there may have been one in between that I didn't say because I thought you might say it. Oh, okay. Well, let's see if this is the one. Uh, Everything, everywhere. Yeah, that's the one. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I think before we used to have like what were the joint ones and then what were our extras. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm kind Mm -hmm. of cheating. (laughs) (laughs) I I realize now when you said that, that that's cheating. But okay. I'm sorry. What's it called again? Everything, everything. What? Not familiar. Not familiar. Uh, yeah, I'm like, I'm just trying to keep this thing moving. Uh, but yes, yeah, so everything everywhere all at once. Definitely not a discoverable title on the list. One of the uh, one of the movies that came out, I think probably out of uh, certainly everything on my list, the movie that came out the, the earliest in 2022. Uh, I think everything everywhere came out in like March or April. Um, and for in, in being honest, it is in my number one position on Letterboxd, and it has been mm. since whenever it came out. And so, like this, uh, the final eight, you know, seven months of the year were just me watching movie after movie, being like, 
maybe this will be the one that unseats everything everywhere. And it never happened. It never happened. I never saw another movie for the rest of the year uh, that that really came close to overthrowing um, everything everywhere. And a- another funny thing about that movie is I have still only seen it one time. Really? So I ha- so I have based the entirety of this on that one viewing experience I had of it. Um, and you know, it was also our Halloween costume. We we were one of the thousands and thousands of people that did this did this look for Halloween this year. Um, and I, I, I and I haven't even really been a huge fan of of the of the directors, uh, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. I mean, you uh, hate that whole the Daniel I do. Thing. I absolutely hate it with every fiber of my being. Um, and which is why I won't call them that. I call them by their full names, like I'm their parent. Um, Daniel Kwan, Daniel Scheinert, you get in here right now. Um, so, uh, so, but I mean, this, this movie, just, just the audacity, the originality, uh, the, 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 I mean, and it is also experimental. So, you know, like, that's the thing, like it, for a movie to be experimental and still like keep me on its side takes a lot. Um, you know, in this movie takes big swings in, in exploring the sort of multiverse implications of this one family's journey. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it just, it, it's just joy. Like this movie is pure, you know, it's pure cinema. Um, it is so unlike anything else, uh, that I saw this year or, or any real year I can think of. I know it came out around the same time as Dr. Strange Multiverse of Madness. It um, did. <laughs> to, much to, yeah, much to the, um, I guess to add to the problems of Dr. Strange. <laughs> Not, exactly. Not much to the, the detriment. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Much, yes. Much to the detriment of Multiverse of Madness, which even without everything everywhere to compare it, it to uh, was not anyone's favorite Marvel movie. Uh, and uh, and then compared to everything everywhere, it was just like, oof, Lord. Uh, so, you know, Michelle Yeoh, of course, has had such an incredible year just riding the glory of this movie and of her rich, layered, amazing, iconic performances, I want to say plural, <laughs> um, as the different versions of herself or her character across the multiverse. Uh, uh Hoi Kwan playing her husband is seems like also might be the shoe and best supporting actor. He is breathtaking and devastatingly and just beautiful and incredible in the role. Stephanie Sue, iconic, legendary. Uh, and of course, Jamie Lee Curtis, just going just full batshit. Uh, it is, yeah, it is. I mean, I, I hope whoever I'm speaking to right now has already watched this movie and already knows the score. Uh, but yeah, and it's, I, I know I, I've heard the one complaint I've heard from people is that it was too long. Um, I do, it's like two and a half hours. And yeah, I mean, I'll admit, like, because it's, it's the kind of movie that, like, you know, circles back repeatedly to the same point in time and then sort of like tell, starts to unspool the narrative again with things going differently. And as it went on, I think I probably did in my mind in the theater think like, oh, my God, we're we about to watch that entire thing again. Um, and then and then. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, so, yeah, like maybe it could have been trimmed a little bit. I don't know. Uh, but all the same, uh, I, you know, I will take a long, ungainly movie full of originality and boldness and daring and freshness and life force, um, you know, over, a, you know, a tighter movie without with less inspiration. I mean, what can be said about this movie that um, that you didn't say? I think once again, if we want to talk about a movie that is so big and so small at the same time, there's no better example. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it even has even has Jenny Slate in it. <laughs> it even has Jenny Slate in it. Um, the costumes, once again, the heartbreaking acting. I, I saw it twice. The first time I remember being just, you know, hair blown back by Michelle Yeoh's performance, and then mm-hmm. watching it the second time, I felt like the the sun was shining so brightly on Stephanie Hsu that I was mm-hmm. like, I. Don't even know how I focused on Michelle Yeoh's performance. <laughs> so it's almost like I had my own um, everything, everywhere, all at once experience in like if <laughs> you watched it again and it was like a whole different thing mm-hmm. unveiled for me. So wow. just I could watch it again. There's I think there's little surprises every time. And um, it's the the sort of like kind of gimmicky things that are done the sort of the rocks scene, mm. for example, yeah. is still done with such heart. Um, I, I think that was the part of the movie that made me cry. So first, mm. so mm-hmm. absolutely love it. Great pick. Here we go. Okay. I don't want to cheat <laughs> again. <laughs> I, so the way I'm cheating is the one that I think that you will also pick. I'm not picking right, so then it makes you look like so basic. Like, oh, you read the Golden Globe nominees? I watch other movies. <laughs> oh, you know you're you're owning it. Uh, so <laughs> I'm I will just put just it out there. Go off. Um, but I am gonna pick one that we did review this year, um, and I I think it's it's really stuck with me. I thought about it again. I think the what what it does in terms of representation, what it does in reimagining a story, and how absolutely gorgeous it is. I'm gonna go with shocking to me, Prey. Oh, okay. Prey is um, you know of, it's part of the Predator series, um, and it's about a young woman who is a Comanche Nation warrior, and as they start to um, start to as as there is now this predator um like alien do we know what i still haven't watched the others (laughs) never went back (laughs) to watch the others um (laughs) but the um the the way it plays with predator and prey the, the i think so many of our other picks are so you know dialogue heavy and this is you know sort of just gorgeous to behold and kept me at the edge of my seat and it's, it's still such a, such a it's such a powerful tale of like trust and proving yourself and believing in yourself and ingenuity and it's beautifully shot and i i just thought it was spectacular hmm. yeah no great pick uh yeah it's 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 a movie that i think we talked about at the time uh what was so special about it was like so many movies uh, just get sort of dumped on streaming services that you could tell them were maybe not intended to start, you know, to live their entire entire life on a streaming service. Um, and Prey managed to cut through the din, you know, mm-hmm. like just like just organically. I was seeing so many people when this was making the rounds being like, oh, my God, have you watched the movie Prey on? It's just on Hulu. It's just a movie on Hulu. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, you know, a testament to, yeah, the power of the filmmaking, of the storytelling, of, of the acting, of just all the craft of the film. Um, 
And yeah, it was just unexpected. And just even the fact that, yeah, to your point, that it's, you know, sort of like the umpteenth iteration in this uh, Predator series. Um, but to have this this kind of, to show that if you come up with a fresh enough take, uh, like a truly fresh take, and have a fresh take that is rooted in inclusion, uh, that mm-hmm. like you can you can still find this new life uh, that you know people would have thought was not there in this franchise, and uh, you know and I think I think that you know and it's not being done crassly because I think you know obviously there 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 are you know lots of times where you have like the you know sort of major studios will try to sprinkle a little inclusion on something to right. make it seem like oh this is you know uh this see see we're 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 being good about this um but with prey it was not just lip service you know prey puts it front and center um and you know it's behind the camera it's in front of the camera um it's really the driving the driving force and beating heart of the entire uh film so uh yeah i was also a big fan of prey yeah yeah and i think i I don't know if this is going to be on your list or not but um when you hear the conversation about best movies of the year, you know, some folks, for some folks, Nope comes up. Mm-hmm. And um, although I think there is a, a terror in, in Nope that comes from the acting, um, there's something powerful about the the lack of the, I don't know, more like mystical elements of Nope in it just being like people encountering uh, this predator on in their own environment that mm. makes it mo- more terrifying. Um, mm. mm-hmm. So yeah. I don't know, not to like, you know, dis nope sure. for no good reason, yeah. but, but if it's like, well, if you like nope, I think you should watch Prey. Yeah, I, I, I concur. Uh, yeah, I, I watched nope a second time over Christmas break. And uh, and I was like, this is going to be the time that I, that it break cut it breaks through to me and i'm gonna be like oh okay i mean and I, I freely admit like my first take opinions on movies are not always the best uh <laughs> it takes it takes me a second time with many movies to be to to really feel like i i can appreciate and understand it and with no you know for like the first half or so i was like oh i think i maybe i think i'm appreciating this more by the end i was like i'm, I'm right back where i was um, so, which again, like, you know, of course, I mean, like no, uh, knocked anybody who, who love Nope and have, has it on their list, but I agree with Rebecca that if you were a fan of Nope, you should give Prey uh, a shot. P-R-E-Y. <laughs> mm, yes. What do you got, Jason? Okay. Well, uh, this next one on my list is one that I would imagine many of our listeners have been waiting to hear us talk about uh for a while and it's a film that actually proves the thing i just said about how i need a second viewing uh to really feel like i can grasp certain films uh because that was the case with this one and this one is tar tar knew it (laughs) also you watched this movie twice Uh uh-huh yeah ah yeah that's great of you i (laughs) want to but i haven't been able to Oh my gosh. So yeah, Scott and I saw this like opening weekend in LA and, you know, we saw it like a weekend afternoon. Uh, and, and I, I think that we were, you know, going, going through the ride of this movie for the first time. I think that I was just, I was just so 
just in the dark on what the movie actually truly was because the marketing campaign was so uh, obtuse deliberately um, and very enigmatic about what the story actually was. Like we had seen Blanchett promoting it on Colbert like two nights prior and, uh, and, you know, for her clip, uh, you know, she, she kept saying in the interview, she was like, she's like going to the movie, knowing nothing about it. She's like, don't know anything. Just, just watch it. Just go. I want everyone to go see it and don't, don't read anything about it. I don't want you to know anything about it. <clears throat> and the clip they showed on Colbert was a scene where she's jogging, uh, in, in the park, in central park. Mm. And she keeps hearing that a woman screaming. And so, you know, which is a very chilling sequence. Um, and, you know, taking out of context, especially. So, I mean, I think I went into it thinking that it was a very serious film and I was taking a lot, I was taking everything that the film was giving us. I was taking very much at face value. Um, that was my mistake, but I was taking it all at face value. And I was like, this is a serious movie about serious things. Um, and, and as the film is going on, like I, 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 you know, it, it has, a what, what seemed to me at the time to be a painfully slow opening mm-hmm. um, that felt like it was designed to deliberately weed out casual viewers. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that if you made if you make it through like the New Yorker interview scene, then you're you're like you're you're gold. Um, but then by the end of the film, uh, it has taken a fairly broad pivot into comedic territory. Uh, with a few scenes. And uh, so I was like, I don't understand tonally what's happening, uh, especially because the middle stretch, because (laughs) tonally, tonally, because the middle stretch of the film has these very intense and very virtuosic centerpiece scenes, um, like the scene with like the abandoned building, uh, like the dog, uh, you know, the scene in the, in the, um, in the Central Park. And, you know, so I was like, okay, this is all very serious. Um, and then, you know, and then suddenly we're watching her like dancing around crashing cymbals. Uh, and, you know, and we, you know, get this backstory on her, on her, on her life before fame. And, and, you know, I'm like, this is, I, what, what am I watching? And then the final, the coda of the film to me was very just racist. Uh, I felt like it was, holding uh the location it's set in up for mockery uh i i felt like it was just as much as it's making fun of how far she's fallen uh it is very much also making fun of where she fell to uh like, okay, that was your, this like, is your first reading yeah, that was my first reading so i'm just like you know i'm just like oh just just the idea of like oh can you imagine going from the the chic gorgeousness of berlin and new york to this um, you know, like that, you know, so I was like, oof. Um, so I was just kind of like, I, I was just so like, eh, I don't know what to make of this movie. So, and then I think it, I, I, and then going in a second time, I had seen enough, you know, sort of, uh, commentary on it by that point about like, you know, I think some, one of the gays at Vulture was like, this is the comedy of the year. And I'm like comedy. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I went back in sort of watching it with that kind of raised eyebrow, you know, in place of, you know, like, let me consider this as a satire, um, you know, as a, 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 a spoof or a parody of this whole milieu that it's depicting. Um, and, 
And then it hit me completely differently. And there's still, and I still was just like very enervated by the craft of Todd Field's direction of, of course, the acting, uh, all the things about that struck me as being really potent the first time around were still there. But then basically all the sort of the connective tissue around it was more, was more resonant as we realized. Cause I think watching the first time I was like, I didn't feel like I was supposed to hate Lydia Tarr. Oh my God. Wait, yeah. say that, say that line, say that line one more time. <laughs> watching it the first time, I did not realize we were supposed to hate Lydia Tarr. It's like we watched two completely different movies. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, I, I didn't like, I was just going along with her in this journey. And I, I did not like, I, I was just kind of like, maybe it's just, I was just blinded by Kate Blanchett. So I was just like, oh, Kate Blanchett, I love her, you know. And I'm just like watching her like act her ass off and scene after scene. I'm just like, oh, she's so good. And, you know, and I'm just not connecting enough with like the character. And I'm connecting too much with the actor playing her. Um, but so like, you know, so watching it the second time around and realizing like, oh, like, you know, like you, it is very, you were very much meant to be sort of like, you know, I didn't realize it was a schadenfreude movie. Basically. I didn't realize it was schadenfreude. I didn't realize that you were meant to sort of be like rooting for this woman's downfall because she is a, you know, toxic monster. Um, so (laughs) (laughs) I want to cut together all your responses to movies. I thought Brendan Gleeson was in the right. I didn't realize Tara was a toxic monster. You're like, what happened to that predator anyway? Did he end up okay? I recently watched rewatched Schindler's List, and I was like, (laughs) no. Uh, so (laughs) so yeah, I uh, yeah, this is what I'm saying. You can't trust me on the first take in a movie. (laughs) I was Uh, rooting for the bagel the whole time. And I mean in everything, everywhere, all at once. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sacklers, what'd they do to anybody? <laughs> uh, so I'm like, man, Golden sure is angry for no reason. Um, so yeah, I, I did not get it. And I was I was totally disconnecting with the wrong parts of the movie. And uh, so, yeah, but then like all things, you know, it, 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 you know, all things considered, I think Tar is... And there are moments also where I was trying to write off as being like, this movie is less a movie than it is just a series of memes. It's a meme delivery system to the gay internet. <laughs> um, and it certainly did seem like that for a while. But, you know, but I think that, you know, now standing back and looking at it, you know, after watching it a second time, uh, like it is it is a remarkable cinematic achievement, I think. Um, you know, like, again, like it, it has that boldness, uh, like everything everywhere, but obviously with a completely different pacing and energy. Um, and you know, it's, yeah, it's just, it's, it's Kubrickian. It just feels Kubrickian. Um, you know, it, it, it feels like it's this thing that, um, you know, like Kubrick knew how to also make this sort of this, this movie that feels to the touch so chilly and so sedate. Um, but if you just lean in and consider a little bit more, like you'll see all the layers and levels of commentary and satire that are going on um, when to, on the surface, it just seems very, just, you know, it just seems very um, metallic. Um, so yeah, I, I really, um, I was, I was wrong on Tar the first time around, but I will admit my, my note on the finale stands. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I still, I, I, I cannot reconcile that. Um, because I do feel like it is still uh, insulting uh, to the location that she's in. Uh, so that that I feel like is is still, you know, in that because I mean, even like the, the the grand joke punchline of the final shot where we realize where what it is that she's conducting exactly and the context that she's conducting in that didn't have to happen there. 
Mm. That that could have been at any fan con anywhere. Uh, so it just it it still feels a little a little uh, uh, yeah condescending to me. Uh, but all the same, I, I can't I can't deny it, especially looking at the year in film and like the more movies I watch after Tar, I'm like, was Tar that bad? Uh, so, <laughs> oh so uh, I mean the movie, not the character. Donkey died in tar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, is it even a movie if a donkey doesn't die? Not in 2022, it isn't. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, so yeah, so uh, was 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 tar on your list, Rebecca? Tar was on my list. Um, oh. And if you would have asked me, so we watched tar. We stopped in the middle. Okay. Um, and then finished it, which I, in retrospect, regret doing. Um, but we, part, part of the reason was because we could not, I couldn't stand it. Like <laughs> I couldn't stand Tar from the minute one. From the, meaning the, the, the character or the movie? The, bo- both. I mean, the, she is so front and center. The movie is so completely about her, um, that it's hard to separate the two, mm-hmm. at least in that first half. Right. Until right. you get to that middle piece with the section of the dog and the, in the apartment building, Mm. Um, and it, it, she's just so unbearable and it's, it's just unrelenting in the, in the, how, how obnoxious she is and how rude and just gross. And, and then the movie starts to take some changes Mm -hmm. and, um, it's the thing we started off being like, there's. I can't believe we're going to finish this. I can't believe you made me watch this <laughs> to, Oh my God, I wish we would watch it all at once and mm-hmm. talking about it for days after and reading all these think pieces about how it's a horror movie, how the mm-hmm. second half may be not, may not have really happened, may have just mm-hmm. happened in her mind. And, and this, this thing about the pacing how it connects back to conducting and being in control of the timing and the pacing and how at the beginning it's so meticulously curated and crafted in her image and it's so unbearable. And then it starts to spin more wildly and wildly out of control um, as she loses control of her life. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, and, and now, I mean, now I, I, I think the, I don't want to disagree about the, the la- the final act being mm-hmm. racist. Um, I, I didn't think that. And I, and I think because it is, it is seen as, you know, a comeuppance or it is seen as like the worst place to possibly be mm-hmm. within the framework of her own shitty mind. So it's like, it's her personal hell, not necessarily what we should take as being a bad thing or the worst place. Because she has all these things at the beginning about, you know, where you're at is so important. Right. Send people here and there. And and so I think that it works as like a payback for her own um, judgment and, mm-hmm. and less of like the director and the storyteller. And we are supposed to understand this as being the actual worst place. Mm-hmm. But I, I could revisit that. I'm not. I, that's yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, I mean, like, I think that's I think that's, you know, I think that's uh, uh, certainly valid. Uh, and I mean, I think we don't really, what's interesting a bit about that, her performance and that whole coda of the film is that like, she does not really register from what I can recall. She doesn't really register any, um, discontent. I mean, if anything, I think she seems sort of just sort of numb and in shock from everything that happened. 
Um, and she seems kind of, you know, so she's just like chastened and kind of, you know, I don't want to say humble because then, uh, uh, you know, of course, like kind of like the part of the punchline, the final bit is that like she's still bringing her full Lydia Tarnas um, to <laughs> to a gig that we realize as it continues is not the gig we thought it was. Um, mm. So, yeah, uh, maybe if it had been in like L.A. or something. Right. I mean, like it could have been in like Arizona. You know, right. I mean, it could have been like, you know, like a, you know, like the, the, the type of event that she was playing obviously happens in every state in the country. Uh, you know, so, uh, so I just like, there's a lot of ways they could have registered, um, that sort of so-called dissent or, you know, decline, um, uh, without, you know, it becoming this sort of racialized thing. Um, agree. Glad you added to the list. Mm. So where are we at now? I'm at, I did three then. It doesn't count when I agree with you, right? right. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. You? Um, once again, we're going to take another movie. This is our favorite kind of movie. Um, satire uh, about the rich. And it is The Menu. Mm. The Menu. Is that on your list? No. Oh. Um, so maybe it's maybe I'm maybe it's not our favorite type of movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think there's probably one on yours that isn't on. Well, anyway, we'll talk about that later. Uh, the Menu. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this one came out in what November, um, and it's about a young couple that goes to a remote island uh, to ex- have a dining experience by uh, you know one of the world's best chefs, and who is played by Ray Fiennes. The couple is Anna, Anna Anya Taylor Joy and uh, Nicholas Holt, and you know they're they're shipped out to this. A small private island. They're given a tour. They are having this very small, intimate dinner with other, you know, incredibly rich people who have bought tickets to the specialty event. And things things get a little out of hand. <laughs> Granted. <laughs> Granted, things get a little out of hand. Um, it becomes um, sort of the the coda of this chef's career to sort of enact vengeance and um, settle old scores and make a statement with this, this final dining experience that puts everything on the table and includes this, you know, these performance, this performative art um, dining experience that involves death and mutilation and absolute terror. Um, I guess this is, at least the second movie this year that was about like food horror. Uh, wasn't the <laughs> oh, other right. one? Flux Gourmet. Flux Gourmet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was also this year. Correct. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we see Anya Taylor joy as sort of an, an, uh, accidental guest at this, at this, um, at this meal, try to try to save other, save the party from a nightmare ending. We'll say. Yeah, I thought uh, it was hilarious, uh, clever. Ray Fiennes is is amazing. Um, it's it's a delight to watch, you know, just watch people get skewered for being their worst selves. Um, and and I, I just thought it, again, it was also beautiful and uh, hilarious. 
Yeah, I, I was a fan of this movie uh, for sure. Uh, I, uh, I I generally liked it quite a bit. Um, you know, it 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 felt like that sort of just like deliciously dark comedy that it's hard to it's hard to to fake. It's hard to you don't come across many that are just like a really just like tightly constructed, clever, polished dark comedy. Mm. Um, and this was very that. Um, and I think that it also this is a movie that that does the the raising of the of the tension uh, mm. very, very well, um, you know, in, in you know, in terms of when it decides to finally blow the doors off the tension, it does so in a very memorable style. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and then as it continues past that. Um, you know, it really it, it commits to its 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 darkness and its nihilism pretty thoroughly. Um, I, I mean, this was a movie that was in wide release. Uh, mm-hmm, so I was mm-hmm. I was I was very impressed uh, that this movie got a wide theatrical release because, again, it is very, very dark. Yeah. And um, I think that like, you know, we're kind of in a golden age of, of this again. I think you saw it in the 80s um, and you see it now with the square um, triangle of sadness uh, White Lotus, and, and and this is not this is one that doesn't come. It's it's an American film. It isn't an adaptation of a foreign film. Uh, and as you said, it's in wide release. And Judith Light's in it. So I mean, how much more palatable could the menu be? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it is definitely uh, I know there's as there were a lot of like think pieces around like, oh, all these eat the rich narratives need to get sharper teeth or oh, they're not saying enough or whatever. And, like, and I do think that like of all of them, the menu was, is saying probably the least because uh, I don't know that it's actually out to do any sort of like clever takedown of anything other than just like pretentious dining. Um, I felt like it's 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 heaviest sort of barbs were reserved for um, the food critic played by Janet McTeer um, and her sycophantic dining dining companion. Uh, and uh, and sort of Nicholas Holt as this like fine cuisine fanboy, uh, and then just sort of like the you know big picture Ray Fiennes and his character's madness. Um, I, I felt like it started to lose some of its power as we started to get into um, the explanations around his motives for everyone that was there, especially because some of them start were just downright loose. Um, so I felt like, you know, which is a common thing, you know, for these movies, they start to explain themselves. They start to lose some of their power. Uh, so I felt like some of the explanations were not all, uh, um, satisfactory, but, you know, it, it was still like, it just, it's the, the art direction, the editing, the music, the tone, like everything about it is just so tightly constructed and effective. Um, and the performances are, I mean, Anya Taylor Joy in this is like she 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 really won my heart. Uh, she's obviously doesn't need my support, but she <laughs> but she's got it. Uh, this is my favorite performance of hers. Um, she is just a real like she is you know the audience surrogate because she's the one who's coming in with no idea what this, any of the stuff is, whereas the rest of them are there very much knowing what it is, but not knowing where it's going. Um, Nicholas Holt continues to be impossibly funny uh <laughs> just so infuriatingly funny 
for such an attractive actor. Uh, Ray Fiennes is, this is a great role for him. Great late, you know, sort of late, uh, I don't want to say late career, uh, but, you know, mid-late career Ray Fiennes performance. Great, great, great. Hong Chow. Uh, mm, between, yes. between this and <laughs> The Whale. Driveways. Uh, yes, and driveways. But between this and the whale, uh, she gave two just truly standout performances this year where you just can't take your eyes off of her. She was the only thing about the whale that I liked in any way. Um, she was she was I was I was almost sad for her that she was so incredibly impactful in that performance in that horrible, shitty movie. Oh, um, we never trickled back on we did the question not. when I pinged you. Yeah, How am I, I supposed to wa- feel about the whale? I, I hadn't watched it yet. I hadn't watched <laughs> it yet. And now I have. Uh, so yeah, it was it was awful. <laughs> um so but uh but yeah. So we she loved her in driveways. Loved her in driveways. I mean, you know, going back to downsizing uh you know like she yeah she is she is just great and she is so completely like distinct in these different characterizations um so yeah i mean this this the menu like you know it's i think it's streaming on hbo max now it seems like everybody's been watching it um i think it makes a fine double feature with glass onion uh you know like i mm-hmm. as a sort of an ensemble whodunit of sorts or in the, or in the case of the menu, who's going to do it <laughs> um, <laughs> and to whom. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's definitely a, a highlight of the year. So well chosen. Thank you. Uh, my fifth and final movie on this list uh, and the one that I alluded to earlier when I said that the title captures everything that me, Jason Leroy, wants in the movie is women talking. (laughs) (laughs) My headphones fell off, sorry. (laughs) Uh, That's funny. Okay, my last one is also everything I want in a movie, but Uh, I thought it might be the same one, but of course not. (laughs) Go on. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Like Mine is sharp stick. Uh, (laughs) I I want a sharp stick in a movie. Uh, no. Uh, so women talking, uh, is directed by, uh, the great Sarah Pauly and, uh, and essentially it's basically like a female Mennonite, 12 angry men, uh, in 12 which... angry Mennonites. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you win. Thank you. So, uh, in which, uh, so, and this is, this is based on a, on a novel that I believe was inspired by true events. Uh, it is about this community of uh, this community of women in a in a in a Mennonite uh, sort of uh, village uh, that um, become aware that these kind of the, the, the women in this community had been sort of haunted and terror. Now, did you watch this movie? No. Oh, okay. Oh, you're gonna fucking love it. Really? Um, yeah, you're gonna love it. Um, it reminds me of like it, it's it's very up your alley because it's very much about like. I know how fascinating you get by sort of stories about like extreme religious orders. Um, and I, may, I remember that movie. There was like the one what was it called like the women's balcony. Uh, it was like, oh, the right, love that one. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Right. Th- think of that. Um, so basically uh, at the beginning of this film, uh, we, uh, we learn along with these Mennonite women that these, these incidents that had been occurring um to the women in the community of all ages, wherein they are having these vivid nightmares 
um, uh, about sort of their bodies being assaulted uh, or they wake up with scratches or, or, or vaginal bleeding, um, that these incidents were not, as the men had led them to believe, the attacks of demons, but rather, surprise, surprise, just men from the community raping these women in the middle of the night. Um, and so the women come together uh, in, in private in a barn uh, to essentially have a debate about what to do now that they know that the men, it's been the men in the community that have been doing this to them, to their young daughters, to all of them. And the options on the table are uh, essentially, do we, do we stay or do we go? And if we stay, do we stay and fight for change or do we stay and just get in line and, and just understand that this is a thing that they do and we need to protect ourselves? So it really is um, a conversation uh, that, you know, that sort of falls into the great lineage of, uh, of, of conversations by marginalized groups when you're having this question of like, you know, sort of assimilation versus otherness. Uh, or you know, sort of like, do we do we stay and work to change the this 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 system, this community, or do we do we just say peace and and go and start our own chapter of life together away from this? Um, so, and that is that's the movie uh, is uh, is is these women having this 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 very um, you know at times intense, at times uh, emotional. Um, at times combative uh, uh, debate. We have um, the actors that play the women include Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, who I finally like. <laughs> this is the first time I've ever liked Claire Foy. She is fantastic. Uh, the genius Jesse Buckley. Uh, we have Frances McDormand in actually a very... Uh, uh, a very small role. Uh, she does not play one of the women who is part of this secret group that is having this this sort of t illicit meeting. Um, she is she is meant to represent more of sort of the traditional women of the community that don't approve uh, of 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 the women having this meeting away from the men. Um, so uh, it, it is, uh, and also uh, Ben Wishaw is also in it as a sort of a a male ally uh, who is there with them to help sort of take notes, to take, to, to take minutes of the meeting. Uh, because uh, I, I'm trying to remember if the women in this community have been raised to not know how to read and write. So I think he is, he is there to, to sort of take down what they're saying so they can sort of. Oh, literally track. take notes. Yeah. To literally take notes. Uh, like oh, wow. literally he's, he's literally writing down like their pros and cons. Oh my gosh. Um, the first meeting of all time where uh, a man's the one taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. For my team to watch this, or <laughs> um, or uh, or although, as Ashley Dilatori uh, referred to him repeatedly when texting me about this movie, Paddington. Poor man's Andrew Garfield. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> also, <laughs> Ashley said, "I know Paddington was in this." Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so <clears throat> it's just a really, uh, it's just a really beautifully acted and written and emotionally calibrated movie uh, that confronts sort of like just a huge, a huge question uh, that, you know, can take many different forms in many different communities in terms of like how to, how to sort of respond to trauma, how to respond 
uh, to injustice, how to respond to victimization, uh, especially when you realize that it is very much a systemic matter. Uh, so, you know, so the film could be transposed to any number of scenarios. And of course, just the scenario that it's about, it remains, you know, sadly, of course, very topical. Yep. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's just, it's just a riveting, a riveting showcase, uh, for the actors and, uh, and for Sarah Pauly as a filmmaker. Uh, so yeah, women talking is my number five. Wow. Um, I mean, it, it, it doesn't sound like anything I'd actually like to see. I never watched, uh, The Handmaid's Tale. I sort of avoid some of those very, I don't know. Um, what feel like hopeless, uh, tales of sexual abuse, but, mm. um, but you know, those are the ones I sort of wait around for, um, award time and for moments like this <laughs> to hear that they're actually, those are the ones I don't want to waste my time on if they're not. Yeah. So yeah, I no, think it's th- important to, to highlight when they are truly remarkable. Yeah. And to be clear, this is not like this is this is really not like The Handmaid's Tale at all, Um, even though it you know it is about like obviously a community where the women dress in a way like The Handmaid's. Um, and, you know, so it's a, it's a you know, it's a conservative, uh, you know, faith based community. Um, but there's not like there's not on screen, you know, rape, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in this. Uh, there's sort of like a there, there are these like brief flashes at the very beginning of the movie just to sort of set the stage for what's happening and just to intimate and to set the stage for these women realizing what's been happening um, just so you can understand their outrage, um, their violent rage that they are in now that they've realized that these men who are supposed to be like leading them, protecting them, have actually been betraying them on yeah. such a, a, an extreme level. Um, and with I mean, with their young daughters. Um, so most it is, it, the, the rest of the movie is almost entirely dialogue. So it, it's very much just like that classic. That's why I cited 12 Angry Men, um, because we're really just watching these women have this this marathon debate about what to do. Um, so uh, so it's definitely not it's nowhere near as depressing or bleak as Handmaid's Tale. If anything, it's it's more it's it's kind of optimistic. Because uh, okay. we're watching, we're watching these women decide what to do to take to take matters into their own hands, um, and to um, yeah, yeah, just take control, just take just take the reins. Be like, we can't trust these men anymore to make decisions for us, so we have to make them ourselves. Sounds wonderful. One great pick, Jason. Check it out. Mm, well, I definitely will. Um, I think I have two copies of this one. For some <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, okay. So my last movie of the year, um, is kind of a surprise for me, but also it's not, once I saw it, I couldn't stop recommending it to people. It is the unbearable weight of massive talent. <laughs> have you seen it? I have. What an unexpected, absolute delight this movie was. Um, it stars... Nicholas Cage <laughs> as Nicholas Cage, <laughs> um, who is kind of having a tough time um, being cast in <laughs> <over> different roles. <laughs> having his own clemency. <laughs> <laughs> He's being haunted by the ghost of his former self. Uh, his family life is falling apart. And um, he doesn't believe he's doing anything good anymore. And around that time, he's running out of money and he, he gets a call from his agent that says, you know, talk to this, um, this really rich, uh, what's like a billionaire in Mallorca 
he wants he's a big fan and he wants you to to be at his birthday party um the the billionaire is played by Pedro Pascal in the, the most hilarious adorable performance <laughs> adorable is the word isn't it though Mm. Uh, <laughs> the world's most unlikely, um, you know, m- sort of mafioso type guy. Um, so Nick Cage goes there and he's he's kind of over it the whole time. He wants to get in, get out, kind of sign sign the check, take the photos and, and, and move on. He's embarrassed by this. Um, but they come to form this friendship where they talk about the movies that they enjoy and um, at, and 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 start having a real like a, a buddy buddy movie moment. They take some LSD together, and he loves the screenplay. All of a sudden, two FBI officers, played by um, Ike Barinholtz and Tiffany Haddish, uh, sort of wrangle Nicolas Cage into helping them take down. A Pedro Pascal's character for for being part of this criminal enterprise. It turns into kind of a you know more of a, an action movie at this point, and it is it just it's hilarious. I I have that, that I happened upon it on a flight, and mm-hmm. I just I couldn't I couldn't stop smiling. <laughs> what a delightful movie. Um, Maybe it's one to watch after women talking. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it 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 becomes you know a you know a silly action movie at the end, but I think that it's just it's done with such heart and you know everything that you uh, like about the Nicolas Cage that isn't like the serious Nicolas Cage, um, you you'll absolutely love here. I'm not even that big of a fan of his. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I also am, am, you know, not as sold on the sort of the cult of Nicolas Cage as many. You know, I'm not like, I don't just see him and be like, oh, oh Nick, you know, like, <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it, I'm like, he's like, I'll work for him uh, a little bit because you've made a lot of garbage, sir. Um, <laughs> so, like, for instance, when we we went and saw the the best film of 2023 last weekend, Megan, of course, um, <laughs> and uh, and they showed the Renfield trailer. Uh, which have you seen the Renfield trailer yet? No, I haven't. It's a it's a really clever idea. Um, you know, you know the character of Renfield from Dracula mythology, who sort of you know his uh, in, in Tom Waits plays him in Bram Stoker's Dracula. He's sort of like the henchman uh, who has to like, go around procuring things for the master. Um, um, like in, the Guillermo and what we do in the shadows. Yeah, kind of like that. Kind of like okay. that. Um, so, and Nick, Nicholas Holt plays Renfield, um, and they're basically, they're doing like a horror comedy. Oh, okay. Um, so they have like, you know, they have him in like a, in a, in a, in a support group of people in toxic relationships, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> and it's like all these like normal looking people. And there's him sitting there with his like pale skin and like, you know, like, you know, gothic old timey, like suit being just like, my boss is very toxic, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and then, and then Dracula's played by Nicolas Cage. Uh, okay. You know, which is a reveal they saved for the end of the trailer. And of course, you know, the, the implication being the audience should just be delighted to see Nicolas Cage. Like, oh, <laughs> um, so but I mean, I but yeah, uh, unbearable way to massive talent. Uh, it absolutely is a treat and a perfect airplane movie also. So well chosen. 
but you know, I mean, I, I, I really appreciated um, just the deep dive it does into his actual own yeah. career, his filmography. <laughs> like, like when they when they start to get into like <laughs> as soon as they mentioned like guarding tests, I'm like, yes. really? <laughs> when he gives a speech from guarding tests, yes. Pedro Pascal it might be the reason why this movie is. I mean, yes, Nicolas Cage is great, but Pedro Pascal's just complete fanboy. Yeah. Um, of it's of hilarious. Nicolas Cage, but yeah, they talk about guarding tests. Yes. Yeah, I couldn't believe they're talking about guarding tests. And you know, in in Cage, definitely is like it's a great performance from him because like just because he's playing himself doesn't mean because obviously it's still a performance. Of course, of course. And I feel like Nicolas Cage has gotten to this place in a lot of films recently where his his presence is just very heavy mm-hmm. in movies. Like he just has he just has this very heavy kind of bloated, kind of tortured presence. You know. Um, and, uh, and in this, he's light. He's just like, he's light. He's goofy. He's like, he's playing, he's making fun, you know, making fun of his own sort of ego and narcissism. And like, he's just giving just like a a, a top tier, like spoof performance, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, as himself. And, uh, and yeah, it's just great to see him just like lighting his feet, having a good time. Um, and not being like this, like kind of performative weirdo the way he is in so much of his stuff now. Um, and is it, was it Cheryl Hines plays his wife in this, right? Or his no, ex-wife? Uh, Sharon Horgan. Oh, Sharon Horgan. Yes, that's mm-hmm. right. That's right. And then actually the daughter, uh, the actress who plays their daughter is, uh, the daughter of Michael Sheen and Kate Beckinsale. Oh, really? I did yeah. Lily, Lil, Lily Sheen. Uh, so, but yeah, no, this, this movie is absolutely a treat. And, uh, you know, I think you're, you're right that it does sort of get more and more into, you know, somewhat more formulaic action movie territory in the final stretch, but like, but you're still like, you're so invested in this relationship because of the heart that Pedro Mm -hmm. Pascal brings to his performance. You're still so invested in like, you want this to work out for the two of them. And you're like, wait, you're like, am I supposed to feel bad about the fact that I love Pedro's character so much? Cause I, I think he's he's meant to be a, a bad guy. Right. You know, like you're, you're, you're just really like, like, I don't know who I'm supposed to root for. <laughs> um, There's this part where they take acid and they think that people are chasing them. Oh yeah. Through this this little town, and it there's just one of the funniest like physical comedy scenes. If a comedy is supposed to make you laugh out loud, I've I've annoyed everybody on that plane. Um, <laughs> thinks he's like gonna gonna die by jumping. Over. It's uh, hilarious, hilarious. Yeah. No, it's a real, it's a real, uh, just out of the blue movie. <laughs> uh, and with such a, with such a knowing winking premise, it could have gone very wrong and just gotten very insufferable and very pleased with itself and its own meta humor. But it, it, it is, it does not do that. It is, it commits to just being a totally kind of like surprisingly straight faced action comedy. You know, it really doesn't get bogged down in its own sense of like it does, it's not smug at all. Like it, it really is just very like we we are doing a, a serviceable action comedy that just happens to have this meta element. Um, and yeah, it is it is it is it is well played. Uh, so yeah, this movie was also definitely one of the most delightful movies I saw last year. Well, that was fun. Um, do you want to? Should we do our least favorite five? I guess we should, and we should probably make it snappy. We should make we it snappy. <laughs> we sure have been yammering on uh, for nearly two hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so maybe we will we will say less about these, uh, but uh, we'll try to still make it count. Uh, do you wanna do you wanna start this one off? Uh, sure. Uh, number one, and I think you already know why if you've listened to our show before, is Blonde. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the movie was harassment to the viewer, to the um, memory of Marilyn Monroe. Um, it feels like it was harassment down to Armas. This was just uh, unbearable to watch, and I, I feel like I'm owed compensation. <laughs> yes, if you'd like to join our class action lawsuit against uh, <laughs> against Andrew Dominic and Netflix, uh, then then reach us out. Uh, yeah, yeah, Blonde is also on my bottom five list uh, for the reasons you articulated. Uh, yeah, I have not changed my mind on this movie. <laughs> um, I was very saddened to see Ana de Armas get the Screen Actors Guild nomination because that means she is now more likely to get an Oscar nomination and this movie should not be an Oscar nominee. Uh, and I know that we were kind of like split on like, should we be praising her performance while we, you know, talk about the movie still being terrible? Um, but you know, like I, and I, I want to honor the very soul bearing work that she did, um, and the extent to which she, you know, trusted, um, Andrew Dominic, but I just don't want this movie to get any shine at all, (laughs) including her performance. Uh, so I, uh, so yeah, I, I hope that, um, this will be a blip, this nomination from the SAGs and that she won't get an Oscar nomination. This movie will just go away. Uh, yeah, Blonde Sucks. Uh, <laughs> my first uh, bottom five pick is Amsterdam. Ooh. Yeah. I haven't seen it. Uh, so, you know, I, this is the, this is <laughs> a movie that confused many during um, the fall season because they're like, so wait, which 1920s old timey Margot Robbie movie is it? <laughs> is it Amsterdam <laughs> or is it Babylon? Um, spoiler, they're both awful. Mm. Um, but uh, but Amsterdam is is a damn sight worse, which is impressive because Babylon really was 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 pretty wretched. Wait a minute, um, so I didn't know if Babylon was coming because Amsterdam just alphabetically would be first. I guess I'll have to wait and see. <laughs> yes, touche, touche. Uh, so Amsterdam is uh, is by David O. Russell. Uh, who is, you know, a filmmaker who, of course, is very controversial uh, for being abusive on sets, um, has some, you know, uh, just has a lot of uh, baggage that seems to accumulate more and more with every passing year. Um, but, you know, he's a filmmaker who's, who's, whose films I generally have enjoyed. Uh, I feel like, I, I, you know, I guess actually, in, a, in all actuality, it's been a minute since I really, I think The Fighter was probably the last movie of his that I really thought was great. Um, I was mixed on Silver Linings Playbook. I was mixed on American Hustle. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think that he, I think he is, um, I, I don't want to call him an, an actor's director since he is by all accounts, very abusive to his actors. Um, but you know, the, I can't deny that this and the performances in his films are very, very strong. And it seems like whatever crazy he brings to the set, especially works for Jennifer Lawrence because, right. uh, because her performances in Silver Linings and American Hustle were both very, uh, just extraordinary. Um, but this time everything just falls apart. It just falls completely apart. Um, this is meant to be this sort of, uh, I don't even, it's hard to even describe what it's meant to be about, but yeah, it's basically just this sort of like crime caper set in the thirties. Um, we have like every famous actor you can ever think of to name, including Taylor Swift is in this movie. Um, no one comes across particularly well. Uh, it is just, it is, it just fails. Like it is just this flailing ensemble crime comedy caper. 
Uh, we're just, it, 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 it work. It does not work so hard. <laughs> like it, it fails so hard at every moment where it thinks it's really sticking something and that it was just excruciating. You know, when you're just watching a movie, we're just like minute after minute after minute, you're like, this is not working. And then it just never started to work. Um, it was, it just was a disaster. Um, just truly, truly a disastrous movie. It's also, that makes me want to watch it kind of. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. I couldn't say that I really enjoyed it. Uh, okay. But even, I mean, like, Anya Taylor-Joy is in this as well. Uh, you know, her, you know, like, everyone's in this movie. Uh, so, but, yeah, it's it's just, yeah, not not a fan. Amsterdam was not great. Uh, and I put myself through watching it just because I was like, surely there will be something about it that I enjoy. And there wasn't. So, mm. so there we go. Amsterdam, top of my bottom vibe list. Alphabetically. 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 Uh, my second pick um, is Don't Worry, Darling. Mm. And I would say, you know, part of me says I shouldn't have it on my worst list because then I wouldn't have gotten all of the wonderful Twitter treats before Twitter turned into um, uh, <laughs> Barren Wasteland and mm-hmm. all of the drama from the Venice Film Festival and the the videos with Sheila Booth and like, Mm-hmm. That was a delightful time of of yeah. discourse, oh, but yeah. the movie, you know, I wanted to love it because it's Palm Springs. Uh, I love Florence <laughs> Pugh, but it I think that it kind of made me hate it more because there were, it could have been so much, and it ended up being, you know, it kind of think back to to the movie Us. I hate it when a movie doesn't put the pieces together when things don't really make sense. And, you know, what this, how this connects this real world life and this, this, um, the life that they live in, in this paradise, uh, utopian experimental community in the desert. Um, it just doesn't make any sense. And it's hard to watch and it's a shame. It is, it's such a beautiful fluff piece. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't decide if I like Harry Styles' performance in <laughs> if if it's supposed to be bad, if it's I it just I don't know. It didn't it doesn't leave you talking about it in any it's not like tar where it's like this is terrible and then we're talking about it for days. Right. This is just like wow, this was trying to make me talk about it for days and I have nothing to say. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was, yeah, just a, a gorgeous misfire. Uh, yeah. And, you know, the press tour is definitely, like, one of the great the great highlights of the year. Um, and, uh, you know, and Florence Pugh was genuinely fantastic in it. Uh, but, you know, I, I think, yeah, it, it was just, it was clearly not a, a highlight of the year for, <laughs> for Olivia Wilde. Uh, and, you know, and I feel like, uh, she did herself a disservice by claiming that the, um, response to this movie was rooted in sexism. Uh, uh, it was like, madam, do not take up the cloak of sexism to, to mask your mediocre films reception. Um, and also like if it had been, you know, a male director who's, who had ended their high-profile marriage and cast a starlet they were stepping in their new movie, 
that would have also been the narrative through that movie's release. Right. It still would right. have been the same the same scandal, the same celebrity culture scandal would have been the talk of the town regardless. Um, the fact that she, so, she also says that this movie is like the sex scenes are important and filmed in such a in a feminist way. And then you watch the movie and the sex scenes are rape. It is. What the hell is she talking about? I think she probably because she means that he eats her out. I'm going to guess that's yeah. why. <laughs> yeah, but she's it's, like, it's very feminist. He goes down on a woman. Not to uh, like spoil the movie, right. but she's asleep. <laughs> Right. Yes. Touche. Touche. <laughs> yeah. No. This is. It is. Yeah. Olivia Wilde has has some has some has some thinking to do about yeah. about what about what she did with this movie. Um. And uh. And yes. Let go and take a beat. Take a lap. And uh. Then then get back to us. Uh. Once you've thought about what you did. So. Uh. Yep. Don't worry, darling. Was not great. Uh, the next movie on my list is one that we reviewed, uh, that we disagreed on. Um, so I will keep it quick because I don't want to reopen. <laughs> you don't want to do this again. <laughs> don't want to reopen this Pandora's box. Um, but it is Crush, uh, which was a, uh, a sort of queer coming of age rom-com that for me just fell painfully flat. Um, similarly to how I was saying Amsterdam was so hard to watch because it was just all the things in it that were supposed to work were just not working. And all I could feel was the absence of things that should be working. That's how I felt about crush. It just felt like just, uh, 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 the bastardization of like this genre that I know and love so much that was just pleased with itself despite accomplishing nothing. Um, and, uh, yeah, it just, it just bummed me out so, so badly. Uh, and, uh, and then I was just, yeah, looking at my letterbox list and there it was all the way at the bottom still <laughs> with these other four movies. So I was like, well, I guess crush is going on my bottom five. I know it might feel like punching down cause it's a, uh, indie queer movie, but indie queer movies can be awful too. <laughs> In fact, many of the worst movies are indie queer movies. <laughs> so, uh, so I will leave it at that, uh, with crush Rebecca back to you. Moving on. Um, my third pick of worst movies of the year is Elvis. Ooh, hot take, hot take. Uh, I, I'm going to have to, I'm going to quote another review because I think this really captures it perfectly. Um, Baz Luhrmann photobombs this Elvis portrait with <laughs> over extravagant filmmaking that dwarfs the iconic rock and roller. Mm. Um, Baz Luhrmann, speaking of if, if, if Olivia Wilde needs to take a walk, she better take Boss Liver with her. I can, he <laughs> he needs to calm down, rein it in. I the the amount of cut scenes, the the scene cut cut cut. It, it was jarring. It was unnecessarily focused on Tom Hanks in this ridiculous fat suit. It made the the ah, <laughs> it, it, ah. Ah, it was just so un so what. Yeah. Yeah. You it, tell him. Yeah. I mean, this is Let what I do. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> and why? And also what? Um, I, I, I re I'm really shocked. I mean, I guess I'm not shocked at the, at, at the reception because everybody loves Bosler and I love Bosler is Rumi and Juliet, um, Moulin Rouge, but he is out of control or it, something is going on where it, it, 
it doesn't tell a much like this review. This it doesn't tell a coherent story that makes any sense because it keeps jumping around and it is a disservice to a to a wonderful story. And I, I do think Austin Butler does does a great job as as Elvis. Um, but what a joke! What an absolute joke! Your your review was performance art. Um, to <laughs> capture the experience of watching Elvis. <laughs> I, was, I had practiced doing it in an Elvis accent, but then I couldn't <laughs> pull it off. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I, I was not, I, I think I also, my, the take that I saw about the movie was it was basically like a Wikipedia entry directed by Baz Luhrmann. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I felt like, or, or you know, or it's a, it's a two and a half hour trailer. Uh so, and I think the thing about Baz is that Baz has a lot of goodwill based on two movies he made over 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the Fablemans, go on. <laughs> uh, so <clears throat> it has been a long time since Baz Luhrmann did a movie that was like even likable. Uh, I was not a fan of Australia. Right. I was not a fan of his great Gatsby. And then I think it just jumps to this, right? Like I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't think he's anything else since Great Gatsby. Um, I think did he do the movie that I think he did the series on Netflix, like the, the the Get Down or something? But yeah, no, I mean like he, we have so much goodwill for him. Like imagine, I feel like uh, I want to compare him to Paul Thomas Anderson, in the sense that they both made these two huge operatic emotional movies in the late nineties, um, for Baz, Roman Juliet, and Moulin Rouge, for PTA, Boogie Nights, and Magnolia. Um, but then Anderson pivoted hard, um, and continued to grow as a, as an artist, as a filmmaker. Um, and even though fans might have wanted him to go back and make stories the way that he made those two, um, which were sort of almost Baz like in the sense that they were both very, just like very, the, the energy of them was just very driving. Mm-hmm. It was very, it felt like you were watching a new kind of movie. Like it just felt like, wow, what is this? Um, you know, and then he started to pivot, um, and, and now he makes movies that feel completely different. Right. Baz, on the other hand, uh, continues to make the same more or less style of movie to, I mean, diminishing returns is putting it nicely. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I, I felt like, I felt like the Elvis moved as a film It it moved along at such a rapid clip from moment to moment in his Wikipedia that like I did, I at no point had an emotional f- connection form with anything I was watching. It was seen because, over seen, like it's like as though switching from like cut to cut. At one point we started counting it. We would be like, okay, they would you know show show frame and we'd count how many seconds until it changed and then it changed. Right. We were maxing out at like six seconds. Like every six seconds, the camera was changing, and. Mm-hmm. That on top of the fact that then there are these montages, so you're just putting scene on top of scene, and then mm-hmm. it's very erratically jumps from throughout his life, how how they focus time, it's yeah. not balanced at all. Um, sorry, go on. It all, but it, yeah, it prevents you from making any kind of connection, right. even though there is like this star actor who's doing a great job of portraying portraying Elvis, but it, it's like kept at arm's distance from you. Yeah, no, it's true. Um... And uh, Austin Butler, I yeah, I thought was 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 very. I mean, I think it's a very very committed, very physical, obviously performance from him. Um, you know, I, and I, it seems like he is suddenly like surging in Best Actor again. Like at this point, like it's it's possible he'll actually overtake both Colin Farrell and Brendan uh, Fraser uh, for Best Actor. 
which would be wild. Um, it would be sort of a repeat of a Rami Malek winning for Bohemian Rhapsody, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of like almost this, this the male called them the male ingenue factor. Uh, <laughs> so, but, uh, but yeah, I thought it was, you know, I thought that he was good, but again, I felt like his whole performance, he was done a disservice by the movie around him because like he's doing this, he, this, this such like deeply felt work. Like he, you know, he spent so much time becoming Elvis but then the movie is just it's moving so quickly that you never really get to have that paid off in any big emotional way. Right. So I'm I'm sure that there, you know, if there was like a, I mean, this movie's already very long. Um, but, you know, like I, I wish it would have been just yeah, just like a chapter of his life. I'd like to see Austin Butler play Elvis in a movie that's told in a more like that just gives him room to breathe. Let his, let's his performance right. breathe so we could actually really engage with like his characterization of this of this iconic person. So, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, was not, and Tom Hanks is just, I mean, come on. Uh, I, I, I could not believe it, but so my former critic circle, the San Francisco Bay area film critic circle, um, released their, they've already announced their winners, but they released their nominees for their year end awards. And they nominated Tom Hanks for best supporting actor for this movie. Really? I wow. couldn't believe it. I DM'd Ingu immediately because she's still in the group. I was like, la 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 la. <laughs> you guys nominated Tom Hanks for Elvis. And she was like, I didn't. Uh, I'm just like, I didn't say you did, but you know what? You're complicit. <laughs> uh, so anyway, yeah, I uh, was not a fan of this movie. It's not a fan of this movie. And uh, and I, I don't know what that I want more from Baz Luhrmann, but we're going to get a lot more because this movie did incredibly well. And uh, and this and seems like it is almost probably going to get a best picture nomination as well. Um, so that's that one. My next bad movie is uh, Sharp Stick. Yep, that was on my list uh, as well. Uh, yeah, uh, Sharp Stick, uh, the uh, the the bad Lena Dunham movie that came out this year. <laughs> uh, since, as you all might recall. Uh, we, and in particular, Rebecca had a love affair with Catherine called Birdie. Uh, <laughs> that was originally on my list too. The good one. I was wondering, mm-hmm. I was wondering between that and Flex Gourmet in an official competition. I feel like those were three movies that you really, really went, went eight for when we were reviewing them. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Sharp Stick, we, we did not go eight for, we, uh, thought it was awful. And it was something that I guess Lena Dunham just needed to get out of her system um, before she could go and make the uh, the eminently more watchable and uh, uh, just overall better in every regard. Uh, Catherine called Birdie. Um, you know, I, I think that we we beat this one to death when we reviewed it. It just it was just it, it has at at its center it has this child woman character that is just so thoroughly ill realized. Um, through the writing and through the performance that is directed by Lena Dunham, uh, that yeah, just does not work. Does not work. It just feels like just just a misbegotten, misguided, uh, very painful and uncomfortable, and not in a way that is in any way like oh, this is good art, making me uncomfortable. It's just bad. It's just it's just poorly done, um, half realized, half baked uh, misfire. Should not be watched by anyone. Over to you, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't agree more. My next movie is The Fablemans. Ooh, the hottest of takes. I mean, is it really? I this, <laughs> you know, the way that the 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 film critic circle voted for Tom Hanks 
this feels like this is a movie for and by Hollywood and who else? This is, it's not fresh. It's not new. It's not imaginative. It isn't exciting. It is, um, I find that the performance by the, I don't even, didn't even look up who's the name of the the boy, the <laughs> Gabriel LaBelle. Thank you. Um, a, a, a complete snooze. I think, you know, Judd Hirsch was, was a fun addition at one point, but <laughs> you know, I, 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 you have, this is a movie for Spielberg heads. And if you're not, then it's not. And I think people have to admit that they're not a Spielberg head and, and that makes this movie not for you. I, I don't know what there is to, it's, it's a fine movie. Is it the worst of the year? Probably not. This is a reaction to it's um, the praise it's for that that has it has found uh, more than anything it. else. But well, I mean, it wasn't like David, great. Did you like David Lynch? Did you like David Lynch? Yes, I did like it. That was a nice little cameo. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I don't know why we're still doing this. Yeah. Yeah. I. uh yeah, I, I also um, was sort of I, my issue with the Fablemans uh, is to me, it felt it felt weirdly um, disjointed in a couple of ways. Um, I get that it's Spielberg telling his own story, albeit, of course, you know, through heavily. I mean, I feel like if, if you're telling your own story, then just tell your own story. Right, like, right. Why, why? Why come up with this like fictionalized version of it? Like. You know, I know it might seem what like narcissistic to be the director of your own literal like biopic, but like that's still what you're doing, though. So just right. say it, <laughs> um, you know, like I I felt like it was disjointed. I felt like it seemed like in the beginning it was setting up this sort of um, this this crucial theme that the reason that his character got into directing was to have a sense of control over mm -hmm. the circumstances in his life that were not controllable. Um, you know, because we have the scene toward the beginning where he, you know, gets this train set and he is filming it over and over and over again, doing these crashes. And his mother, Michelle Williams, is like, he's trying to control it. He's trying to control it. So, so he doesn't feel like he's dangerous or he feels safe. Um, and, but then the Spielbergism of it all kicks in and cause I'm thinking, okay, so this is all leading to him, like making a story about his family, um, you know, directing this like fictionalized version of his family to cope with like this sort of out of control nature of their dysfunction, which I was talking to someone about this the other day is not that bad. Uh, no, you know, no. es yeah, essentially like it's just that his mom is a little kooky and, uh, and is having an affair. Um, and that's, 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 that's about it <laughs> in terms of the dysfunction of the family. Um, although the affair factor, um, it did make me wonder if this was actually a sequel, uh, or a prequel to a previous Sarah Paul, uh, Sarah Pauly movie called take this waltz. Did you ever see that one? No. Uh, in which in that movie, in the beginning of that movie, Michelle Williams is married to Seth Rogen. Um, <laughs> and then she starts to have an affair and then leaves the marriage. Uh, so uh, I was like, this, there's a greater cinematic universe of Michelle Williams <laughs> um, uh, uh, cuckolding uh, husbands with Seth Rogen or just cuckolding Seth Rogen. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so. Uh, but, yeah, I just felt like 
so then but then when the you know the his character starts to get into directing he's doing this stupid fucking spielberg thing of like i'm doing westerns and i'm doing you know and like there's only one scene that pays even remote lip service to like this actual thematic connection where his family is fighting and then he imagines himself like walking around filming them um but like to me that was just not enough to really tie it together and then in the second half of the movie suddenly it becomes school ties and you know (laughs) and now we're suddenly watching a story all about like mid-century anti-semitism in like a school setting uh which of course like again like it's insane that at this point in time we have to say that it's relevant and topical but of course sadly it is um but like again to me it's just like we're just like throwing out these different things about young Spielberg's life, but not in, in their fictionalized, but not so fictionalized that they actually come together cohesively. Uh, it just felt disjointed. And to your point, also very much just like a brazen love letter to the Academy. Um, very much big for your consideration vibes throughout. It has such um, a like early nineties. Um, feel around like directors making movies about their families, but from the point of view of them as 10 year old boys, not looking back at them with like an adult realization of things. Mm -hmm. And I see that a lot in the way that Michelle Williams character is, is that one more kooky mom, I swear. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's, it's, it doesn't feel um, as though they're, they're, they're treated like uh, complex adult characters you're still very much seeing this through the through the eyes of you know uh, a child, and I think that as as a director, this this established and this far into his career, like we should we should have more. We should expect more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this ultimately just feels like another work of sort of just like boomer self mythologizing. Um, yeah. And we don't need any more of that. We just don't. Uh, so yeah, I, I agree with the spirit behind your inclusion of this title on the list. I agree with you that it is not, not actually one of the worst movies of the year, but I agree with, uh, the, the sense that this is being wildly overpraised, um, despite not being, um, actually very good. Uh, the fifth and final one on my list is they slash them. Oh, that's my final one. Hey, oh, back in sync. <laughs> so, so uh, this one we reviewed on the show. Uh, it is uh, just another, uh, yeah, just a, a misbegotten attempt at queer horror uh, that was just completely incoherent, uh, that made terrible choices throughout, um, that seems to think it's saying something that it's not saying. Uh, that uh, has a the, the year's worst needle drop musical cue. <laughs> uh, <laughs> truly disproves. Like I feel like I, if it wasn't for this movie, I would have a theory that I would feel ironclad about that. Uh, like an impromptu musical number where the characters like all like sing or dance to a song in the middle of the movie always makes that movie better. I feel like this movie is truly the fly in the ointment of that theory for me (laughs) because like the characters all doing the pink song. It's fucking perfect. I think, right. Uh, Doing fucking perfect in the middle of this, this piece of shit movie is, is one of the most like soul crushing (laughs) sequences this year (laughs) that makes me hate movies. It makes me hate pink. It makes me hate everything. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, this is, this is, uh, you know, I'll I'll go back to what I said the first time around. Anna Klumski is great. 
but otherwise this is not <laughs> not great not great that was my last one uh yeah it was uh a disservice it didn't make any sense um to to make it be this sort of like i don't know what like reclamation of queer power it it just felt um not not well thought through and uh, I think, as you already said, a disservice to the community. Yes. I mean, like, it could have been so much more. If you're going to make a movie in 2022 about, like, a queer conversion camp, like, for fuck's sake, like, like there are so many ways you could have make, like, a resonant or salient point in your, and it just doesn't make a single one. Not a Especially single one. Especially because this is a genre where people have been doing that, not right. obviously, for a very long time. So right. now we're in a place where you can make one that is obviously, you know, through the lens of, of the, the queer people being heroes. And also they're not. It's, right. it's like a sub, subversive homophobic horror right. movie yeah. uh, taking revenge on all of the um, undertones of previous horror movies. Right. Like my mature leader was like over 20 years ago. So it's like, at right. least if you're going to do a movie like this, like then big, Oh, I've got a take that's going to improve upon it. No, not, not a, not a thought in its head. No. Uh, nothing even approaching that. Uh, so yeah. Then, so we are, we end, we end this episode in alignment. Oh. <laughs> so we thank they slash them for uniting us in its awfulness uh, <laughs> and sending us out of 2022 on an appropriately disappointing note. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was nice chatting with you. We should talk more often. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have any scheduled breaks coming up, so we should uh, we should get on that agenda. That's true. That's Thank true. You. We gotta, we've got to review Megan. <laughs> we do. We do. Um, she just beat me in chess, so I, I already have feelings about it. Um <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We hope your 2022 was wonderful and your 2023. We are excited to watch movies with you. Again. Here, here. Here, here. Bye, guys. Bye, folks. Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. You made it to the end. That's amazing. There goes the binge.